You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is the Frey Podcast, brought to you by thefrey.com, a place for women who want more from life. Welcome to today's episode. This podcast is a conversation with Dr. Sarah Ashton from Ships Psychology on attachment theory. I personally have been really fascinated by attachment theory and it's something that I just think the more people who know and understand what their own attachment style is, the better we are going to be in relationships. And if that famous saying about the quality of your life, depending on the quality of your relationships is true, then anything we can do to widen our knowledge and understanding of why we are the way we are in romantic relationships is only going to propel us forward and make life easier. So Dr. Sarah is a registered psychologist, a board-approved supervisor, a researcher, and the director and founder of SHIPS. She has over 12 years of experience and really prides herself on bringing warmth and respect to the therapeutic space. Sarah's approach to therapy is elective and adaptive. She utilizes the schema therapy approach, internal family systems, sensate therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, mindfulness, acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectal behavior therapy, and EMDR, depending on what the client needs. It's safe to say Sarah is an incredibly intelligent and warm woman. I really enjoyed my conversation with her on attachment theory. During this episode, you can expect to hear a little bit about the origins of attachment theory, when, why, and how it was developed a little bit, what the different styles are, how those different styles present themselves as characteristics and traits, ways that we can work on our attachment style, the combinations of different attachment styles in relationships and the way that that can show up. We also talk about attachment styles in terms of, as parents, how we can promote secure attachment in our children. There's a lot in this conversation and I really hope you enjoy it. I know I definitely loved speaking with Sarah and I said to her during our conversation, please come back and talk to me again because she's obviously just such a wealth of knowledge. Now, before we dive into today's episode, it would mean a lot to both Sarah and I. If you do take a screenshot, pop it up on your Instagram stories, tag me at Kylie Camps or at the fray underscore and tag Sarah's account, which is Ships Psychology. You'll find it in the show notes. And I mentioned this at the end of our conversation, but their social media account is brilliant. It's definitely one worth having in your feed. Now, lastly, before the episode really begins, today's podcast is brought to you by Pony Cosmetics. And that is Pony with an I. So Pony Cosmetics have the famous White Knight Mascara. They also have a range of brow products, which I'll talk about in a second. But they also have the blush, bronzer and highlighter compact that I am obsessed with. I'm actually using their highlighter today. I'm wearing it right now. Their highlighter that's, I guess, designed initially perhaps to go on your cheeks. I wear that as eyeshadow as well as a standard highlighter and I love it. You can also use the bronzer as an eyeshadow as well. It's one of my favorite combinations. The highlighter kind of, you know, towards the f- like towards your nose. I'm so not a makeup artist, clearly. Um, but that's what I love about these products as well because they're super buildable. So you don't need to be great with makeup to actually get great results with them. But their highlighter, I put that sort of in the corners 
towards my nose of my eyes and then the bronzer in the outer corner and that's one of my favorite easy eyeshadow looks but I'm actually using their compacts so super super versatile product they also have the brow magic which is really really well known and brow magic is the first pony cosmetics product I ever tried that was years ago the boys must have been three it's like the perfect brow pencil And the Brow Duo Powder with their angled brush is brilliant as well. So if you haven't tried Pony Cosmetics and you want to get amongst it, jump over to the website. There is a link in the show notes or you can just head to Pony Cosmetics. And don't forget it's P-O-N-I. And if you spend over $50 on the Pony website, you will receive a free full-size White Night Mascara. So enter the code KYLIEGIFT at checkout and get in quick so that you don't miss out because this offer will expire on the 10th of October. So hopefully you're listening to this episode in real time. Head to Pony Cosmetics, check out their compacts. Their highlighter, bronzer and blush are brilliant. They all have that ombre tone to them. So there's a gradient in the colors. So you've got your deeper bronze to your lighter and same with the blush as well. Just super, super easy, buildable. Love, love, love them. That code is Kylie Gift when you spend $50 at Pony Cosmetics for your completely free full-size white night mascara. All right, let's get stuck into my conversation with Dr. Sarah about attachment theory. Sarah, thank you so much for taking time out of your insanely busy day to have this conversation with me. I'm so grateful. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. I was reading through your bio on the Ship Psychology website and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to talk to Sarah about all of these topics, but we'll stick to attachment theory likely today. So let's begin with defining exactly what attachment theory is and how it comes up in our romantic relationships. Well, attachment theory was developed by John Bowlby um, and uh, that was in the early 1900s. And he was basically looking at how um, infants responded when they were separated from their parents. Um, and, And what he found is that um, when there was separation that happened, usually they'd go to extraordinary lengths to try and bring about um, uh, re, um, a reunion with uh, their, their caregiver. So I suppose the important thing to mention about humans is that they're actually the only um, animal that is uh, completely dependent on their caregivers for survival. So other animals actually are able to um, take care of themselves in some way, but humans are completely dependent on their um, their caregivers for food, safety, nurturance and, and reassurance and um, all the things that they need in order to grow. So essentially what this means is that all the things that happen to us when we're, when we're young hardwire our perceptions of ourself and our perceptions of other people in relation to getting our needs met. And the important thing to mention about this is that children are uh, egocentric, right? So uh, they think that everything that happens to them is about is about them because parts of their brain haven't de- developed yet. So what this means is that if they don't get what they need in some way, they assume that it's their fault and also that it's their job to go and seek it out in some way or to try and deal with it in some sort of way. So maybe to shut down and repress it. So what attachment theory describes is a person's reaction to or a child's reaction to getting their needs met or not and how this forms a blueprint of their perception of themselves and other people. Mm. And so John Bowlby described different types of categories that um, uh, tend to define the ways that people typically uh, attach to caregivers. Did you want me to, to, to share what they are? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to add to that and saying that, you know, when I've been listening to certain things about attachment theory and also reading, because I find it so fascinating and I think going through a divorce will do that to you. You start to kind of like unpack things and be like, oh, interesting. Um, yeah. 
but as I was learning about attachment theory, what I found really interesting with the strange situation experiment mm. where they actually had that experiment of infants and toddlers, place them in a room, then mum exits the room, watching mm. how the kids respond and try and meet that need of getting their caregiver to come back. But not just in that time frame, but also the focus on then when mum or the caregiver does come back, how they act. You know, does the infant put their arms up and want the caregiver willingly? Or is the infant putting their arms up, but then also hitting mum and going, go away as well, like kind of avoiding them? Or do they keep themselves busy with toys and distract themselves? Like I found it so interesting. It's Mm -hmm. not just in that space of not having the caregiver present, but also when the caregiver returns. I find it so fascinating. But, yeah, I would love to hear about the styles. Yeah, and, I mean, I think that what that's really indicating is how the child has used their internal resources to deal with that distress, to Mm. deal with that uh, separation. And that kind of comes down to to temperament, so, um, you know, that children are really born with, Um, but also just sort of what, Um, resources they have internally available to them and also how um, what kind of behavior in the caregiver they're dealing with right so if we look at attachment styles you know um, some some of the adaptations really result from or are born from uh, inconsistent or even kind of abusive behavior right so the, the the way that you adapt the way that you respond and the way that you respond when you know a parent comes back Exactly, exactly. It's it's also, um, it's dependent on what behaviour you're coping with and also what your internal resources are, you know, and then it just, it develops from there. Yeah. So they developed different categories. Would you Mm. mind talking us through those categories? Yeah. So um, the the ideal, (laughs) and uh, it's estimated that maybe about half of the population fall into the category of secure attachment. And this is where you have a positive view of yourself and a positive view of other people. So you tend to think that people are predictable and reliable because your caregivers were predictable and reliable and gave you love and nurturance and safety. So what this means is that, um, you know, as as we grow up, uh, we tend to be comfortable in intimate relationships and also comfortable with independence. Um, and that, that you're able to form emotional attachments and trust um, and be intimate with, with ease. So you have the expectation that, that things will go well and that uh, people will give you what you need. So you're, you're operating with that assumption in place. And so typically with people who do fall into the secure category, are they also just better at self-regulation? Well, that can definitely be part of it, uh, particularly in the context of uh, relational kind of triggers. So there are all sorts of different things that might be difficult for people to uh, regulate or particular types of emotional experiences that could be triggering. A lot of them are relational um, for you know, for most humans, um, but some of them might relate to a specific event, you know, or um, in terms of being able to... Um, uh, have control over their behaviour, so internally regulate in some way, um, and and also in in able being able to kind of achieve tasks and um, you know have have reasonable expectations for themselves. So there's things that might fall outside of um, the category of of uh, you know um, relationships that still might be challenging for regulation. But yes, absolutely. If you learn to you learn to regulate yourself by looking at your parents mm-hmm. and you um so they model it for you, they show you what it looks like and also you they co-regulate. So they they actually um regulate you and then this allows you to learn how that um feels and, and what that looks like and what that involves. Um, so yes, massive advantage for <laughs> for regulation if you're securely attached. <laughs> And what are some other styles for those of us who don't fall so neatly mm. into the secured box? Yes, those lucky, lucky people. <laughs> I know. Before we, start, before we started recording, I was saying to Sarah that so many people, when I have this conversation with them, you know, just socially, they're like, oh, straight away, secure. I'm secure. I'm secure. But then yeah. you get a little further in the conversation and you're like, but are we? Things <laughs> <laughs> to aspire to. <laughs> yes, yes, striving for. Yeah. 
Um, so the next category is anxious or preoccupied. Um, and so uh, what this means is that uh, in that the situation where um, a parent is unpredictable or they, they leave, the response of the, the child is to, to seek out, um, so to move towards the caregiver in order to get their needs met. Um, and so what ends up happening is that they tend to internalise and possess a negative view of themselves but a positive view of other people. So this is where they, they assume that the lack of attention, the lack of their needs being met, it must be their fault and not the fault of the other person. So they're more likely to... Um, uh, to become preoccupied um, with the behaviour of other people and think that they need to do things in order to um, to, to get their needs met, to, to achieve intimacy. That makes so much sense. And I imagine with people who, you know, I don't have to imagine that hard, Sarah, just between you and me with anxious <laughs> attachment. But, you know, with anxious attachment, then perhaps the way that I'm understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, I really like the way you've explained it, that they people in this category who or who you know lean towards this category they're moving towards someone else thinking that the more that person pulls back the more they need to get closer and that it's really like oh gosh I've got to control their behavior Mm -hmm. or if they leave and do something that's not about them that's about me like it's I guess a little bit more self-centric back to you know kids being obsessed with themselves Exactly. You're more likely to assume that it's something you're doing or not doing or some, something that you're, you know, Lacking. that you're not worthy, you're, that you're not, you know, good enough. Um, all these sort of thoughts and assumptions are really common with people who um, have uh, anxious attachment. Um, yeah. And then they just have a fixation and preoccupation with often monitoring the behaviour of, of um, people they're in a relationship with and looking for signs that they're going to pull away or that something is going to change. And perhaps needing more reassurance. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and they really want um, a deep sense of of intimacy and and approval and responsiveness from people. So they'll often really feel like they're kind of not quite getting enough from from their partner or partners. You know, um, and they they constantly sort of um, they want more connection uh and, and and that's usually to to reassure their anxiety that 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 person is going to leave um but often what happens is that you know um intimacy is such a kind of tricky space because it's when someone's close all they're worried about is when are they going to leave when's the you know <laughs> yeah. when, when where's the the signs that things are going to go wrong because they're not they don't have that underlying assumption that secure securely attached people have which is that things will be okay, you know, people will show up, they'll stay around, of course they will, you know. And the old uh, Beta-Meinhof frequency illusion there, like if you believe that, then you're going to look for signs of that and perhaps create more circumstances to prove that belief is true, right? Like if that's your belief from childhood, you're probably going to end up self-sabotaging because there would be a sense of um, certainty and reassurance, even though it's you know, not necessarily a good thing that's happening, but you would feel some relief at being assured that, yes, your belief is correct. That's exactly right. So we uh, usually subconsciously seek out what is familiar to us. So mm. we, if we're used to having this particular relationship dynamic, you know, you'd sort of think that consciously people would say, no, no, I really want someone who's going to treat me well and who's going to be available to me. I know that's what I need and I deserve. But guess what? Subconsciously, we're drawn to the familiar because it makes our world predictable and safe. And also it really influences who we're attracted to as well. Um, you know, we tend to have great chemistry with people who kind of fit in with our um, blueprint of attachment. Uh, so if you're really drawn, like an anxiously attached person might be really draw, um, drawn to someone who's avoidant, who's not available, you know, because it kind of, it, it, uh, there's an underlying. It's like home. Yeah, it, is, it, it does. And also there's, there's an attempt almost to externally heal the wound that was um, caused through anxious attachment or as a part of anxious attachment because the fantasy is maybe if I'm enough, then they'll If maybe I could be better and then they'll stay. You know, they're unavailable, but wouldn't it be wonderful if I could could win over the availability, if I could overcome the availability, 
by just being better, by just being more, by just being more perfect, right? So there's this, that that totally fits in with that narrative of like, this is my fault, this is my ownership, and this is the way that I'm going to heal it. And of course, that is never going to heal it because really it's about the the self-perception and the expectations within the relationship and those patterns and that, you know, and actually feeling as if our needs and our worth are, are valid. Um, and that's the thing which is going to bring about um, a healthy dynamic in a relationship, not being better and doing more because you're already in. <laughs> we are just so complex, aren't we? <laughs> Humans, we're great. Um, so we've got secure, we've got anxious. Mm-hmm. What, what else have we got happening when it comes to attachment styles? Yes. So then we have the dismissive dismissive or avoidant. And so, by the way, these two are usually pretty attracted to each other, like as in the avoidant attachment and the the anxious attachment because it um, (laughs) fills each other's expectations. Enough said, yeah. 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 Um, So what ends up happening with uh, a child who develops a dismissive attachment style or an avoidant attachment style is that they – in order to cope with the distress of their caregiver leaving or the inconsistency is they they retreat, they withdraw and they kind of numb out, I suppose, from the needs that they have. They disconnect from those needs and they just try and seek them them internally, you know. And a lot of the time also what happens is that they may, you know, um, have a caregiver who has lots and lots of... um, changes in their their emotional expression or behavior um and so in, in it would actually be dangerous for this particular you know um for the child to maintain ongoing connection with this caregiver because they ultimately fear that they're going to kind of lose their their safety and lose their sense of self um by by connecting in this way so uh people with avoidant attachment they have uh, usually a positive view of themselves and a negative view of others. So this is opposite, right, to anxious attachment. And and they usually have a um, a high level of desire for for independence. Um, They tend to suppress or deny their feelings, again, because this is not something they're used to connecting with or showing others on the surface. They usually deal with rejection by distancing themselves and, um, uh, yeah, they, they, they tend to retreat into their own worlds when things get difficult. Yeah. I know you mentioned projection, but also with conflict. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which, as you said, you know, if an anxious attached person and an avoidant attached person are in a relationship and one's like, please reassure me, and the other one's like, please leave me alone, like I need to retreat, like yeah. that's just got to be a recipe for lots of dis-ease in that relationship. Absolutely. So what what typically happens is that in the beginning stage of a relationship between someone, um, between an anxious and an avoidant person, um, it it's, it's usually pretty good because there's not enough intimacy for the avoidant person to feel um, threatened, you know, because they're still, there's still um, in the process. A separate of life. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, and they're also during, it's the honeymoon stage. So they're probably still communicating and, and giving the anxious person lots of attention and, and idealization, right? But then what ends up happening is as more intimacy comes about, as as um, more intimacy develops in the relationship, that's when the fear of losing a sense of self comes about. And then, as you say, if conflict comes up, <laughs> then the anxious, uh, the avoidant person will respond by retreating within themselves, creating distance and moving away. And the anxious person will want to seek out, they want to have conversations, they want to move towards of and they want to yeah. Because that's kind of taking like the, it's a gross analogy, but like the scab off the top of the wound for the anxious person because they're like, oh, my gosh, there is something wrong here. Yeah, like it, exactly. it feeds that beast. Exactly, yeah. But, of course, it, this actually just kind of starts snowballing because the more that the anxious person seeks the avoidant person out, the more the avoidant person pulls away. And so it just, yeah, um, doesn't usually end well. <laughs> and, and really there needs to be for 
it's not that anxious and avoidant attachment styles, you know, can't work in a relationship. It's just really that there needs to be a a level of awareness um, from both people that this is what they tend to do and an awareness around, okay, and this is actually how I take responsibility for looking after myself for noticing how I'm behaving, noticing how I'm showing up and really agreeing on how you're going to deal with these sorts of situations where maybe conflict happens and you're kind of doing your anxious thing and you're doing your avoidant thing. Mm, Having an understanding of each other's attachment styles Mm. must be so important because then when you're able to not be sort of so in the emotional state, when you can kind of zoom out and feel a little more logical, you can then go, okay, I understand this is that person's blueprint and that's all their stuff, you know, and not take it so personally. Understanding your partner's attachment style is the ultimate love language. (laughs) Yes, yes, of course. So many correlations with love language, but this obviously just runs so much deeper um, than, you know, the old acts of service and gifts and whatnot. Yeah. Are there other attachment styles or are there like combinations of attachment styles? Can you be anxious avoidant? (laughs) You can have combinations just like anything. This, This all sits on a spectrum and you can definitely have combinations of of um, different ones and something else that I tend to see as well is that you might have different attachment styles for let's just say when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That your um, your parents are different genders um, and you, uh, you, know, you, you develop an association, you have an attachment style with one gender or one type of relationship and you have a different attachment style with a different gender, right? So you, you might have, you know, avoidant attachments with with um, with women and, uh, you know, anxious attachments with men. That's that's a really common kind of dynamic. I'm so glad you brought that up because that was yeah. something that was on my mind. I know a lot of people who have an anxious attachment to their father, say, for example, mm-hmm. so then that translates into relationship, mm-hmm. but then they're much more secure with their mum. So in friendships, they're not, like, continually chasing people down. They're pretty chill. Yeah. But in relationship, it's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. And don't forget that, you know, the stakes are higher when it comes to romantic attachment, you know. Um, yeah, and it's, not, it's not the same, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's more likely to be, um, a, that's more likely to activate some of the similar attachment styles because there's there's more dependence, you, you know, um, there's more risk um, and it's, it's, it, it models kind of the attachment with caregivers um, in adulthood. Well, I guess with that, you know, level of intimacy that only comes in a romantic partnership comes that level of vulnerability. And absolutely, when we're vulnerable, we're all exposed. Now, you mentioned that it can be a little tricky at times if an anxious and avoidant style, you know, couple develops. Is there an ideal combination? Um, well, I guess, uh, secure, secure is <laughs> always, or, or to, you know, if you're anxious to be in a relationship with someone who's secure, or if you're avoidant to be in a relationship with, um, someone who's, um, secure. And then of course there's, um, there's fearful or disorganized attachment. Um, and again, that'd be great if, uh, it was paired with, uh, secure attachment as well. <laughs> what um, are some traits of fearful or disorganized attachment? This this usually comes about when uh, someone has experienced um, really inconsistent behaviours from their caregivers, maybe neglect uh, or even abuse. Um, so you're really you're not just looking at the absence of or um, yeah the absence of nurture and, and care, or um, maybe uh, you know parents not being available, uh, you're really looking at potentially um, incredibly disruptive um, and, and abusive behaviour that, that really um, distorts people's perception of, of safety, you know, um, safety in their body, safety in their world um, and safety within relationships. Um, so what 
what this does is it actually tends to disrupt people's perceptions of of themselves quite profoundly um, and also their trust in others. Um, So they have a negative view of themselves and they have a negative view of other people's uh, other people and they tend not to trust the intentions of other people. Um, They also tend to, they can respond by suppressing or denying their feelings. So, uh, you know, in addition to trying to cope by suppressing um, how they feel, they also may just um, have experienced uh, gaslighting from an early age, you know, where they're told that their feelings are wrong or that they, you know, um, something doesn't exist, you know. so Like they're standing um, on shaky ground. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, really there's a, there's a lot of disorientation. And so this typically means that, um, people who have fearful or avoidant attachment styles, they can completely avoid relationships altogether. They can just go, you know what, it's just not safe to be connected or to get close. Or they might do things that are really sabotaging or they might um, be involved in trauma bonding, so really chaotic relationships that are super intense and then super destructive. Um, and they might kind of not really be able to recognise the the signs that, this person really maybe isn't that good for them, you know, um, and they just kind of uh, accept behaviour that is abusive or not okay because that's what they, that's their blueprint for relationships. So how do they know otherwise? Um, so it, it really can have a pretty profound impact on, on, on someone's life and someone's relationships moving forward when, you know, that's been their blueprint. Yeah. We're all just victims of our upbringing, aren't we? <laughs> Well, we are very, we're very plastic, you know, um, and it's, you know, there's definitely some, um, some nature, you know, uh, as well as nurture. So we we definitely are born with um, temperament and characteristics, but we are, uh, you know, it's incredible to think about how much the experiences that we have form and shape who we are and how that then translates, you know, into who we become as adults. And of course, we don't think about any of these things usually until we've become adults and we start going, why do I keep doing this? Why am I like that? (laughs) (laughs) Why does this keep happening to me, you know? And that's when we start to try and make sense of it and go, oh, I learned to do that back then or I learned to cope in that way back then and and that's why, you know. So, um, and I guess I want to say because, you know, when we start thinking about this, it can sort of make people feel a bit sad which it it is sad um or or maybe a little bit powerless but um you know really the thing to remember is that all of these things can can be be healed and you can you can actually have relationships which are really healing so you know if you experience a um securely attached relationship that can actually change your attachment style um and also if you're able to work through it and understand these things for yourself and you go to therapy and um, you do lots of wonderful healing, you know, all of these things can be, um, you know, can be altered or changed. So, th- so there's, there's hope. Don't, don't feel like just cause you're stuck in that, in that cycle or that um, you're, you're kind of noticing these things for the first time that, you know, that that, that means it's going to be like that forever. There's, there's definitely yeah. you can do. Yeah, of course. And as you mentioned, we are plastic. So we're plastic in the sense of like we take in everything and we can be molded into one of these attachment styles. But we're also plastic in the way of going, oh, I have awareness now and I'm going to learn new behaviors and try and learn new thought patterns and processes. Mm -hmm. One of my questions is, do different people bring out different sides of your attachment styles? Like, could someone be triggered into being more, I don't know, avoidant when typically when, you know, in another relationship they might be more secure? Can you swing between the styles, I guess, depending on the relationship? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think, I, I think it's interesting to sort of look at um, what's actually going on because like let's just take the example of um, someone who's anxiously attached right so let's just say they have a relationship with someone who's really emotionally unavailable and maybe it's really quite difficult and they sort of go oh I'm never going to do that again you know I'm never going to be with someone who who doesn't give me what I want and who doesn't pay attention to me and so what can happen then is that they seek out someone who's who um 
they overcompensate for this, right? So they seek out someone who's extremely available um, and really almost kind of similar to them, perhaps. They're also anxious, you know, um, and and because this is this is actually um, unfamiliar and also because it's not really coming from a secure place either, this can mean that that person kind of starts going, oh, no, this a doesn't. This doesn't feel right. At they all. get the ick, Sarah. Yeah. That's what we call it. They get the yeah. ick. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I guess I'd wonder if it would, if if that might be part of the reason why there's there's such a swing. You know, not that necessarily our more by design. Exactly. Exactly. That different situations are going to bring out different things in our attachment styles. You know, um, and 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 attachment. It's more complicated than attachment styles. You know, it's something that the um a type of therapy that i use is, is schema therapy that's that's a, probably a little bit more of a nuanced way of describing the complexity of attachments because these blueprints that we form um are, yeah they're pretty complicated um so it it's really important to get a very clear picture for you of what that what your blueprint is because that's when you're going to be able to see you know the sorts of patterns in situations that tend to trigger you you know sort of behavior in other people that tends to trigger you um you know and then once you have a really good idea about that that's when you can start to to make some changes and you mentioned that you know, relationships can be quite healing when it comes to moving through our own trauma and triggers. Can you also work on your attachment style if you're not in a romantic relationship or is it something that you really do need to be in relationship with another person to be able to go, oh, this has been brought to the surface? Absolutely you can. So the the main kind of pathway to healing attachment styles is to become securely attached with yourself. Um, so what what we tend to notice is that uh, we respond to our own internal experiences with our attachment style. <laughs> so uh, we 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 have we have these relationships with you know parts of ourselves that feel afraid or parts of ourselves that feel blocked off. You know, so actually we can do so much healing by by being a good parent to ourselves. You know, um, and we call this the process of of reparenting. You know, so figuring out what it feels like to feel secure and stable and honor your needs and set appropriate boundaries and, you know, communicate about what's important to you. You know, all of these things are about being securely attached and loving yourself, you know, and, and that's the thing that's going to put you in really good stead um, for whatever kind of connections you build moving forward. I love that. I'm so fascinated by the reparenting approach and I think that it's it's so important I would love to have you back on to discuss reparenting at mm. a later date because yeah. it's definitely something that needs more air time definitely. so if you are avoidant in relationship it's likely and again I'm just I, this is a question is it likely then that you might be avoidant in your relationship so rather than just feeling what you feel you'll lean into behaviors that aren't serving you because it's more comfortable for you to avoid that is that what you're saying when you mean, is that what you mean, excuse me, when you say work on yourself with your attachment style? Mm, so, I mean, an example of how you could work on yourself if you say, for example, have an avoidant attachment style is that um, you, uh, I mean, you might notice this in relationships that you have that aren't romantic. So you might notice it in work relationships or friendships as well. Um, but typically people who are, avoidantly attached usually they're not particularly good at connecting with and feeling their emotions and also setting boundaries in in their life you know so really this it's it's about the attunement that they have with themselves and their ability to prioritize and communicate how they feel um, and so that that's something that you can that you can learn to do through um uh you know meditating through being able to notice sensations in your body pick up on emotional states um, through being able to learn skills for communicating uh, about you know how you feel um, even even if you're doing that by yourself so um, you know even if you're keeping a journal and you're you're, you're writing about how you feel um, and just noticing typically how you respond when things get difficult you know um, and noticing what is the what's the fear where's that fear coming from and that that fear was genuine perhaps when you were a child where the attachment formed, but actually right now you're safe, you're okay, you know, and that 
what you need to do in this situation in order to get what you need is to, for example, you know, say, I, you know, I really want to be there for you right now, but I, I don't feel like I have the emotional or mental capacity. Can we make it time to talk tomorrow? Right. So there's a way of creating independence and and also creating connection at the same time. And that's really the key um, for somebody who's avoidantly attached is to figure out how to do that, that they don't, it's not about choosing, you know, um, connection uh, or independence and internal safety. It's about being able to kind of have that, have the duality of those at the same time and figuring out how to feel safe when, when you're close to other people. Mm, a skill set to really practice. Mm. A question that I imagine some listeners will have is what if you are in a romantic relationship and you're really working on your attachment style and you have a bit of a grip and a bit of an understanding and you're really trying to take accountability for whatever attachment style you you know have but your partner doesn't really either believe in it, buy into it, isn't interested in it, doesn't want to know about it. How can you continue to grow together in that situation? Mm. Yep, I've heard this story. <laughs> That's why I'm like, I'm just going to ask this question, Sarah, because it's a question that, it, you know, I know that someone will send me a message and say, I listened to your episode and I'm doing the work, but my partner's not doing the work. What do I do? Mm-hmm. Well, Usually what I encourage people to think about is actually what this means for the the broader context of your relationship. So a lot of the time, um, you know, the reason why somebody doesn't want to do the work actually might be connected to, to how they view their role in their relationship, how they think relationships work, um, how invested they are in the relationship, honestly, um, and and also how what they actually think is important for the connection, you know. So so sometimes it's just not actually very clear to the other person why this is really important. You know, it's not actually part of their perception of what is important when it comes to a relationship, you know, so and we can reference love languages in this context. Perhaps they really think, you know what, I'm actually you know, the work I'm doing for this relationship is to to go out to earn money so that we can have stability and we can have the things that we need in our life. And that's how they view, you know, um, their contribution. Exactly. And, and so they don't really understand perhaps, you know, why this would be so important, right? So it's really about getting on the same page to first of all understand the purpose behind this, you know, and and, and really understanding and listening to your partner or partner's perspective on what they see as being important and how they see the relationship and their role in it um and 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 once you're on the same page it might be a lot more helpful but I guess the other thing to 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 add to this as well is that if you do the work it's going to help your relationship you know and everyone is on their own healing journey and sometimes you know People in a relationship are not at the same place in that healing journey, and that's really frustrating. But, but, but if you're doing work on yourself and you're meeting your own needs and you're working on regulating yourself, then that's that will likely really influence the dynamic within the relationship, you know. And and then you know your partner or partners might notice this and they might go, oh, that's pretty good, I, you know. What and 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 if they if they see the impact, that might be a really good motivator, you know. Um, the other option is to, you know, to try and see if they'd be interested to come to relationship therapy and then a psychologist can help explain why it's important. <laughs> Sometimes it's uh, easier received from a third party. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Something that I've heard Esther Perel say is that she thinks of relationships as the space between two people mm-hmm. and that really sits with me in terms of going, okay, there are two people here and we both need to be making deposits or contributions towards that space. And it's very rare, I think, that, you know, throughout a whole relationship that the contributions or deposits are going to be 50-50 matched. There are going to be times when someone is doing a little more of the heavy lifting than the other person, and it might come out in the wash over time. Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think there's, if you're looking at, you know, 
the way that people move and evolve within their life. You know, that's just, it's not a, you're not always going to be in the same place and it's not going to be a kind of, you know, linear process where you're, you know, both in alignment or you're both doing the same kind of work or, you know, you have the same kind of resources, you know, and, and I think that what's really important is, is kind of the, is to uh, acknowledge and, and give some words and meaning to this, you know, because once you can make sense of this and, and you know where you want to go together, you know, um, and you have shared articulated goals and you know your positioning within that, it can be just so, so helpful. Um, and and it, so it's not necessarily about getting anyone to move any different place. Uh, it might be more about being able to appreciate and articulate um, where where you're at um, and what you need from each other um, to be supported in that space. Mm, absolutely. I feel like I would be a little bit remiss not to just quickly ask the question, given that so much of our, all of our attachment style comes back to good old childhood. And I know a lot of people listening either have children or are going to go on to have kids. What are some ways that we as parents can try and instill that secure style attachment from a young age? Mm, that is a good question. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think this is something that um, that that parents can be pretty anxious about if they if they know about attachment theory. <laughs> um, and I think the thing to remember is that you you know you turned out okay, so it's it's all right. <laughs> no one gets it perfect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, look, I think that you know you just need to keep in mind all the things that are are really important for for growing a human and for and that a part of human needs so safety and stability and consistency in the way that you respond and to to allow a child to be expressive but also to set limits and to 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 show them how they can regulate themselves show them how they can have um you know uh uh doing a, a task achieve a, a task you know that they're okay if if they're they're left alone, that you will come back, um, you know. So you, we can really look at attachment theory and and look at what uh, secure attachment involves, and and that that's a really good model for for, for the behaviours that would be really useful. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, if if you're coming from a space of love and and good intention, that's that's the most important thing, you know. Um, you can't. Uh, be everything and and do everything and uh you know really that the the space of love and care and and the importance that you're placing on you know your child's well-being is 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 a, is the thing that will uh translate the most to their blueprint because that's mm. the thing that they will they will feel and that's what they will absorb mm. And something I often share, I've spoken about it on the podcast, I'm sure, but, you know, just in real life, in conversation when I'm speaking with parents who perhaps are taking on quite a bit of responsibility for the way that their children are presenting. Mm -hmm. And I can put my hand up and say, I've done this. I have nearly eight-year-old twin boys and one is very anxious. And I'm often like, oh my gosh, what have I done to cause this anxiety? But the thing that I find comfort in and I often share is, I have identical twins and one is so independent and one is so secure and the other one just is so much needier and so much more anxious. Same DNA, identical twins, raised by the same people, but presenting to have totally different attachment styles. Mm. So I guess I just wanted to add that in because I don't want parents to think, oh my gosh, it's, you know, all completely on me because some of it obviously has to come from from them, from their own you know, the way they see themselves. Yeah. The the really important thing to remember is that, you know, there's the parent's behaviour, but then it, it's the child's perception. Perception, of yes. Right? Yes. And so and children don't have all the resources to understand the complexities of adult behaviour, you know. So this is I also say this to people when they're thinking and making sense of their childhood and they're like, oh, I don't want to blame my parents. So they, they really did love me and they did, you know, want to do a good job. Um, it, 
<laughs> it is it is really about that internal interpretation and that's not something that parents have control over you know how how children make sense of that and then you've kind of got this complex web of like you know um temperament and then um you know the the first kind of internalized experiences and then how they then impact on what is internalized moving forward so you've kind of got this really complex infrastructure internally that just kind of reflects off each other and influences the way that that person interacts with the the outside world you know so it it's fascinating and also it's there's a lot there which is completely outside of the control of of parents yeah I love yeah. that. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for having this chat today and explaining attachment theory to us. Where can our listeners connect with you? Um, you can find us on Instagram. So that's at Ship Psychology and Facebook, uh, it's Ship Psychology. Or you can check out our website, www.shippsychology.com.au. Brilliant. I will put that in the show notes, but I will definitely recommend to everyone who is listening right now while this interview, this podcast episode is wrapping up, jump over and find Ship Psychology on Instagram. It is an account you want in your feed. That's how I found Sarah because I was just seeking out accounts that were going to bring information to me that I have been, I guess, just not super aware of. And I have found following the Ship Psychology account super, super helpful and enlightening and insightful so i recommend doing that and again sarah thank you so much lots of food for thought in this chat today thank you for having me it's been great this is what i want this is what i need if you don't have to go i can set you free are you gonna make a move are you gonna come and see whatever you want to do you know what's cool with me catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 